Welcome to Reframing Ministries with your host, Colleen Swindoll-Thompson. Here's Colleen. Hi, my name is Colleen Swindoll-Thompson, the Director of Reframing Ministry at Insight for Living, where our desire is to help anyone who feels stuck to rebuild their lives with hope and purpose. And today I have Brad, who is a pastor of Community of Grace Church with us. Brad, thank you for being with us today. Absolutely, thank you for having me. And my dog is gonna start acting up just as we start this. <laughs> That's fantastic, it's that or a baby. We're okay with that. <laughs> um, the topic that we're gonna talk about today, Brad, I think, and you might agree with this, is one of the most misunderstood topics in the church today, because probably we have a lot of false beliefs um, maybe the way that we were raised has taught us to believe a certain way about forgiveness and releasing things that have so deeply wounded us, which I think is also one of the hardest practices in the Christian life. Absolutely. No doubt. You have quite a bit of experience with that. And I would like you to just start off with your story and um, how you got to where you are today. Oh, yeah, forgiveness, why do we think that forgiveness, if we forgive somebody who's hurt us, we always feel like if we forgive them, then we're letting them off the hook. And uh, right. many times it's easier to forgive somebody when they ask for forgiveness. <laughs> but um, I have a life of having required a lot of forgiveness of myself for people to forgive me, but also for me to forgive those who hurt me through everything that went on in my life and has gone on thus far. Many years ago, I was pastoring one of the largest, fastest growing churches in North America. In fact, um, in 94, something like that, it was the 13th fastest growing church in North America. And um, everything was happening and uh, we were relocating the church and I was getting quite out of control. My my life was spinning out of control. I would be at the office and work fine, but then I was doing all kinds of uh, crazy things. I was driving on country roads, going 80 miles an hour, trying to go 90 on these hilly dirt gravel roads. I would turn off the car lights. I would stick my foot out the door. Um, I took all kinds of risk. I had no clue what was wrong with me. I just felt like I had this horrible, horrible, gigantic monster inside of me that I was trying to control. And um, I was always high drive, high drive, high positive, very creative. I could go to a hotel and work um, an entire week um, with hardly any sleep and come back with more done in six months than most people could get done in six years, it seemed like. And um, I would drive my staff crazy because I'd come back with all <laughs> kinds of things, you know. And um, Well, uh, sh long story short, what happened is I kept pleading with God, help me, help me, there's something wrong with me. And because we were moving the church and it was so public and we were buying this piece of property that the city didn't want to turn over to a church because it would take it off the tax rolls, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I ended up having an encounter with the law one evening and it was extremely painful. It was a very shameful thing and it ended up making the news. And um, so I'm one of those pastors that people have read about or seen on the news and everybody talked about. And I could not explain anymore to anyone else why what happened might have happened or what I, why I would have been accused of such thing and that such thing was masturbating in front of an undercover officer for 20 seconds in a, in a, outside of a, outdoor bathroom at a lake where there were no lights or anything. And you don't have any recollection of that? Or did anyone know you were struggling as much as you were? I The only recollection I have of it up to that point is I. it's like looking at a very dark video at, at where there's no light. And, you know, back when videos were first new, uh, you know, back when I was probably a seventh grader. Um, <laughs> but um, 
how it, it was just dark. I couldn't see anything, couldn't hear anything. Um, I accept full responsibility for what the officer said happened. There were two officers there. They did not agree with each other. There was actually in court, which was like, tra it would have been a $50 fine. And um, anyway, um, I accept responsibility. I still don't know. That's not something I would ever do. It's not something that I'm even, uh, f you know, in my flesh would ever think of. But I do know now today that um, when I went to the hospital at the end of that summer, it happened in May and it wasn't until um, late August, early September that the church finally got me to a hospital in Michigan. And it was there that I found out I had bipolar disorder. And I had never, ever considered that as a possibility before in my life. And the behaviors that I was showing, what I was doing and the risk taking and the acting out were just, they're just typical issues that people with bipolar disorder have when they're not treated because the impulsivity center of the brain does not, it, there's no ability many times to um, uh, take charge of your impulses. So, mm -hmm. you know, and there's impulses we all have that we don't even know about. So who knows, it was risky behavior, but I take full responsibility, but it, it, that's mild considering the fact that I would drive to where murders were, I would do this, I would do that. I'd end up in other cities and not even know how I ended up there. So, um, you know, just driving at night, so. I can't imagine the frustration that would be to not have control. I mean, I think of, the first thing I thought of was in diabetes, how our brain controls those hormone releases. And when we have diabetes, we don't release the right amount of glucose and insulin. And so we take medicine for that. This is, this is kind of like a pre-diabetic Oh my gosh, what's happening to my body? Well, yeah, I was so diabetic, if you will. I was so, had bipolar so bad that I basically ended up in a diabetic coma, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. Now, did your, where was your wife and your family at this time? And from the time that the police came until you were diagnosed, tell me about those days in between. Oh, it was wild. Um, I would function pretty well during the daytime. I would just talk nonstop. Nobody, I would hold my staff up in meetings for hours. I had about 30 people or so on the staff and I'd just hold them up in meetings for a day. And it was just listening to me talk, you know, and all my ideas and all these things. And um, my wife knew something was wrong and she actually went to some of the elders when I was out of the country and in Africa and that's a whole other story how... Yeah, I was going to say, that's safe, going to Africa when you're driving and you're totally manic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was totally manic and in Africa. Um, I didn't drive while I was there. They, they didn't let me, I guess. <laughs> but um, my, my wife went to the elders and begged for them to intervene. That there, She knew there was something terribly wrong and it was getting worse. Um, but the response that she got as well as I got when I got home was basically we don't want to slow the growth of the church down so we don't know what to do and um, quite honestly it it was devastating because had they intervened at that point had somebody helped me um, it wouldn't have hap had to happen the way it did but God in his grace in his forgiveness and his love for me um, that horrible, horrible thing ends up being where he really brought healing into my life and, and made me really whole. And I, I always say, I'd rather not ever go through that again. Never. Uh, it was 23 years ago. It's not painful today, but I wouldn't want to go through that pain again because, um, it, but, but I'm glad I went through it because experiencing God's forgiveness and his mercy and his grace and seeing how he could use my brokenness to help other people has been, um, my life's never been better. 
And uh, which is so amazing, Brad, because I know people listening right now are at the very bottom, and they're saying there's no way there can be any redeeming thing about this circumstance or this situation. Can you speak into that for a minute? Yeah. What, if I could just back up very quickly and just say, and um, I make sure that nobody gets to use this book title because I've got it. (laughs) Um, But I would love to write a book someday about shaming grace. Because I think what the church needs is a new reformation about grace and forgiveness. Um, Somehow we've kind of learned to say, well, you're forgiven and I love you, but. But, the buts. The but on there is you've shamed us, you've embarrassed us, um, you know, this, we've got to move on so to speak. Mm. And I don't hear that when Jesus talks to Peter after Peter has denied him. I I don't hear him say, um, I love you, I forgive you, but you're broken. You're broken merchandise. And instead, what I see is in the Bible that it says God uses uh, clay pots, that Mm -hmm. it's in our brokenness that um, he can really shine his light out. And in my thinking, um, prior to all of this, I would have said I would never tell a story as embarrassing as mine. And quite frankly, I don't like telling my testimony. I don't like it because it's messy. It's very messy. But God's grace and his forgiveness goes to those messy places. And um, what I have found is that The first time I told my story to the first Fresh Hope group I ever had, I did it the first night because I thought these people need to know who I am because I bet you they won't come back the next week. And what happened was every one of them could relate and were so thankful that I told about the worst spot of my life. And um, what I found is that it's through telling your story that it's liquid gold for the kingdom of God because it's not about me. It's not about what I did and how resilient I was and all of those things. It's really about how God has taken it and make, made it work for my good in my life. And um, so if there are people that are listening to this that are feeling as though the best is behind them, because that's really what I believed, and I believed I had messed up so much that I would never, ever have again what I had. And today I can honestly say that church in particular for me was an idol. I was more worshiping my ministry than I was the God of all creation. And that was my identity, it was who I was. And I am so thankful to God to have gone through the brokenness because I'm more whole today, broken in a bunch of pieces, but glued back together in new ways with light shining out of all the cracks. And you know, I love Patsy Claremont. Anytime she speaks, Mm -hmm. I'll listen. And I love the fact that she had that book many years ago before this ever happened to me. I loved that book, God Uses Crackpots, because I knew then I was one of them, you know but I wouldn't have let anybody know. Now I'm willing, you know, I'm broken. And it's through that that God can use us. And I believe that's what Paul's talking about when he says, you know, the older he got, the more he realized that it was really God's forgiveness and it was all about grace. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, um, I hurt people in in my sickness. I hurt my family, I hurt the church, I hurt the church at large. And I have to take responsibility for that. And I've asked for forgiveness for the, where I could and how I could. But also, it seems like in the church, because of judgmentalism and kind of self-righteousness, um, the church turns around and its own people wounds its own wounded soldiers. And um, because of that, I had to learn how to forgive other people also. Yes, and I have, um, what's interesting, Brad, I mean, I have so many thoughts going through my mind as you're sharing this because we're going to, I'm stepping ahead for a second, but as we, 
as we look at where you were to where you are today, I mean, Fresh Hope, the organization that you started was birthed out of the mess that God has put back together. In fact, you say Fresh Hope is a peer-to-peer, Christ-centered wellness approach to mental health, recovery based on six tenets that empowers people to connect both their faith and recovery principles. This approach empowers and encourages individuals to live rich, full lives in spite of their diagnosis. And I would also say in light of their diagnosis. Right, right, yep. Um, now, when you, when you put that together on your podcast now, Fresh Hope is the number one Christian mental health podcast in the world. Could you have imagined that? Yeah, shocking, shockingly, no, I couldn't imagine that. In fact, I didn't know that until recently. Um, yeah. I bet years ago you would have been really impressed with that rather than exactly. unbelievable, Lord. Exactly. I would have wanted to be the number yes. one. I would have wanted it to be, um, oh, God's really using me. Today, it's more out of, okay, he's using me, but he's using me through my brokenness, and I'm just, I'm, I'm authentic. What you see here is what you're going to get at my house, you know, and uh, you might not like what you see here sometimes, because I'm not going to pretend uh, like this last Sunday, uh, my father died about three weeks ago, and this last Sunday, I, I don't know if I had a wave of grief or what, but when I started the sermon, I just said, I don't feel like preaching today. I, I don't really want to do this. <laughs> I need your prayers. And, um, you know, I'm sure if there were any visitors, they were probably like, what's wrong with him? The church stepped up and prayed for me. They got up and laid hands on me and prayed for me. Um, so I don't like to pretend anymore. And I think there's a lot of pretending in the Christian church. There's even pretending about, um, because I'm a Christian, I have to forgive you, so I forgive you. But, and there's that but again. And right. it, I it makes it difficult. Oh, well, it makes it impossible, actually, to have a true relationship if there are conditions that we have to meet. In fact, Brene Brown, one of her books, Rising Strong, says... Forgiveness can mean we stop respecting and evaluating people based on what we think they should accomplish and they should be doing and start respecting them for who they are and holding them accountable for what they are actually doing. It means we stop loving people for who they could be and start loving them for who they are right now, today. Yeah. It means sometimes that when we're beating ourselves up, we also need to say to our own harassing voice, I'm doing the very best I can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's amazing how judged I felt after everything happened and it was in the news, etc. It didn't matter that it was only for 20 seconds. It didn't matter that I had 10 years of ministry behind me and this is in the newspaper and nothing else is coming out about me. It, it, it didn't matter. This 20 seconds did it in. And um, that was from man's perspective. Um, it, it was it was absolutely from man's perspective and from all people's perspective, including mine, I didn't see how anything good could come out of it, nothing. And it just, for me, I got into a whole period of my life where I had nothing more than toxic remorse about what had happened and, and just sheer dread. I mean, I was suicidal, I was, you name it. Um, I wanted out of the emotional pain. Um, and, and that's what I needed. And I wrote a song during that time um, because I felt like God was so close to me. Oh, wow. In my brokenness, you know, the Bible says he draws near to those who have a broken heart. And my heart was just broken. And I didn't know if he loved me, I, but I could sense there was a quiet peace. And one day, I sat down and I just wrote a, a song called A Simple Word of Grace is All I Need. That's all I wanted was just somebody to tell me, you know, out loud to be Jesus with skin on for me and to say, it's going to be okay. I love you. 
And um, I can say that to others now in their brokenness, and, and my life is living proof that it's okay. God's gonna get you through this, and he will take it and make it work for your good. So could you have said that before this had happened authentically to others? I could have said it, but it wouldn't have been authentic. And my life would not have been an example of it. <laughs> I, I think the, the I, I'm really into hope and what happens with hope and why people become hopeless and all those things. There's been a lot of research done on that. And people become hopeless when they feel like they have no future. Yes. And when 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 you are so to speak told that what happened now you have no future you begin to be hopeless but yes. i can look at people and say you may feel like you have no hope you may feel like there's no future but i'm here to tell you there is and here's why you can believe me i'm living proof my life's a testimony not about me but about how god does it and and um, the interesting thing about hope is when you when you share those kinds of things, mm -hmm. it, people can borrow that from you. The research shows you can borrow hope, you can give hope, just like love. If you love somebody that feels unlovable long enough and you hang in there with them, ultimately love wins and hope right. wins and. So what I needed was I really needed to just be forgiven. And, mm. uh, and I needed to forgive those who had hurt me. And that was really hard. It was a journey. Um, it, was, I, I, it was a choice I made because I knew I had to make that choice. But I think most of the time, most of us want to hang on to that unforgiveness. And it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die, you know. Um, unforgiveness isn't hurting anybody but ourselves, you know. And um, plus, I think, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, Colleen, maybe you'll help me remember, but he wrote the book, Bait of Satan. Um, the whole idea that we say in the Lord's Prayer, forgive me as I have forgiven those who have hurt me. And to me, that's pretty serious. If I'm gonna to say to God every week when I worship, you know, forgive me my sins like I forgive those who sin against me, that's pretty serious. So that's pretty core right there. Um, it's very conceptual. And to make that, help make that practical for us, what does that mean to forgive ourselves, let's do the, that process, and then move towards others. But first, we only can give what we have in us. So to the degree that we've forgiven ourselves, then we're free to get, forgive others. So how, what did that look like for you in your process of healing? For me, I had to literally choose to forgive. I had to say it. I forgive so-and-so. The next thing I had to do was I had to stop rehearsing what they had done to me and what happened. Okay, stop the ruminating. Yep, I had, to, I had to take captive my thinking like Paul talks about. And in fact, uh, research shows that the brain actually can create a groove in there, an electrical groove in the brain where that's its default setting. So I had to change okay. the default setting. Uh, neuroscientists that, that are Christians say, well, science is finally catching up with the Bible. And, and so I had to do that. It took years to do it. It really did. And it was out loud. You had to speak it out loud because that makes a huge difference and also writing it. Yes, I had to I had to say it out loud. And every time I was rehearsing it, it's like when you're really focused on something and somebody walks into the room and kind of spooks you or scares you and you go, wow. And then it's hard to get your concentration back. That's what you have to do to your brain. You have to literally say, no, don't think yes. that. Don't go, oh, it's not gonna change anything, stop. And, and then I always had to, thirdly, move on to something else and to just do that over and over and over and over and over. And pretty soon, I could, I could tell the story, even in detail, about what transpired after everything happened. 
And I realized that I was telling it with no emotion. It didn't hurt. And I knew that I had forgiven. I knew that I had let go of it. So did you take some principles? By taking every thought captive and by renewing our minds, we have to put the truth in where the lies were. And I love your interview with Sheila Walsh for your podcast that I listened to because she said the enemy wants us to be so isolated and feeling so disconnected that we really die to our own hope and cannot get out of that. And she carries little cards with her. I do with me. And I thought, oh, I'm so smart because Sheila does this too. I have given them to my kids. You know, put this in your pocket. Tell yourself the truth about who you are in Christ, about who he's made you, and about how he has forgiven you. Now, is that kind of the practice that you put in place? Oh, yeah. Yep. I had a notebook and also had friends that spoke into my life at that point. I, I found out that not only do you find out who your friends are when you go through brokenness, but you, oh, also, wow. you also learn to accept the friends that God brings to you. Um, it, they might not have been the people that I would have chosen as friends, but it's who God brought into my life. I had a pastor friend uh, that I didn't know before any of this, and he, he um, He stood next to me and he said, I don't care what happens, I love you, brother. And when the dust settles and this is all over, we're gonna be standing together, but you will be standing. And um, it's not somebody I would have ever palled around with. It was in the past that he wouldn't have been um, important enough for me, really. Okay. Just being honest and um, the egotistical maniac that I was prior to that. And here God brought this man into my life and he's still in my life. And um, I learned to accept the people he brought in. Those people, when I was really at my work, you know, at the times where I couldn't do it myself, that I was believing the lie, that I was believing and, and doing this, what I call wallowing in my circumstances, you know, rehearsing it over and over and over. And when the things that I did for myself to stop it wouldn't work, I'd call one of them. I would get in touch with them and say, I need to stop thinking about and just tell them flat out. And just even in doing that, it helped. But I had a notebook and in there was a little sheet that I'm sure many people have seen, who am I in Christ? And it's a sheet full of who I am. And, um, you know, it's, it's amazing what the Holy Spirit does when you use God's word. You know, it's alive yes. and active. And he brought me to a place where, I, yeah, I take responsibility. There is an explanation for what's happened in my life. It's not an excuse, but also at the same time, there's much more to me than just my failures. And, and by yes. the way, I've got a lot of failures and I'm gonna have more in the future. But he, he loves me where I'm at and I love me where I'm at. It's okay, I don't have to impress anybody. It's okay if they don't get me, if they don't like me, you know. Yeah, I feel some rejection, but it, I don't, life is too short to have, um, to, to worry about all of that. And I think sometimes we worry about the people who hurt us. I wanna just tell you one quick part of the story. I'm not sure I've ever told this publicly, so bear with me. Um, My best friend ended up being somebody that I was very wounded by through all of this. We We were on the staff together. And After about seven years, it took me about eight years to get to a point where I could honestly say that I had forgiven him and I had let it go. And then I made the plea with him numerous times if we could get together, maybe three times, four times, and it never happened. And I had given up hope because I figured it just on this side of heaven, it wasn't gonna happen. And then I was helping somebody in his family, extended family member um, with a mental health challenge. And it ended up being that he contacted me 
And I cried to the Lord the night before, and I said, 18 years, Lord, 18 years this has gone on. Why did it take that long? And I didn't get an answer, but I can tell you this, we met the next day, there were tears between both of us. We, we confessed to each other, we forgave each other, and it was as though those 18 years had never happened. And Unbelievable. to me, that, that's the work that only God can do through forgiveness. Um, I, I, I hold him dear in my heart today, and yet he's somebody who wounded me deeper than many others have ever wounded me. Um, right now, I'm reading a book called Forgiving What We Can't Forget, and it's by David uh, Stoop, I believe, and he talks about the fact that so often the church says, well, Christ forgives and forgets, so that's what we're supposed to do. Which, yes, of course, he does forgive and forget because, because he has all knowledge. There are no lessons to learn for him. He knows all things. Yeah. For us, to forget some of those wounds would be missing the redemptive part of what has happened. And so it goes from a wounding memory to a redeeming memory that then allows us to open up space for others where otherwise we would have remained shut down. Yes, I have a, I, I told this story not long ago in a sermon and uh, I think about it every now and then. I have a little tiny black spot right there on my hand. I went to country school, a one room country school. And wow. hey, that's how old I am. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was kind of like the little house on the prairie. Um, but. Kim Schultz borrowed me her pencil because my, I, I couldn't find my pencil. I was in third grade and the pencil fell. It was really sharp and it fell and I went to catch it. And of course, I'm kind of a klutz and it just stabbed me in the hand and the pencil was hanging out. So, so oh my understand. gosh, that was traumatic. I mean, I was like, and you know, you're a boy, you're a third grader, you try not to cry, but it hurt and blah, blah, blah. Well. He, Many years later, I have that scar. Now that situation taught me when your pencil's falling, don't try to catch it. Just wait for it to get to the floor and then Very hope good. you can bend over and get it. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that's what the Lord wants me to do with, he, he, takes, he takes the pain in our life. He never wastes the pain that we go through. He never wastes it. It, it, it is, the very way that he brings change and healing into our lives. And, and as awful as pain is, it is a wonderful gift at the same time. And um, then we have scars from that pain. If you ask me, I, I have some surgery scars, but it's where I'm able to say, look at that scar. My grandkids noticed my gallbladder surgery scar, and it's only about this big. And um, they're like, Papa, what happened? You know, and I say, well, my gallbladder was bad and they took it out and they took it out by my belly button, you know, and they're like, oh, and so the coolest. <laughs> yeah, well, and this story of and God healed me. Isn't that amazing? You know, isn't it amazing what people can um, do today because of what God's given us, et cetera. And to me, that's the same thing we do with, you know, we need to remember, um, not remembering in the way that rehearsing it, or even to badmouth the other person, you know, or to slam them yet, kind of a score of, you know, beware of so-and-so or whatever. But now, right. one thing I think that's important to say about forgiveness is, it's also important though, when you forgive somebody who is not a safe person, and not someone that you should allow back into your life, that's okay. Right, absolutely not. I mean, there's a sense of self-preservation and respectful preservation of oneself requires a boundary from someone who's very toxic or who's going to damage us. I mean, if I have someone that's gonna break my leg, I'm not gonna probably go running with them. No, no. This, and The same is true with our emotions. Um, Brad, you have six tenants with fresh hope that I wanna touch on which I absolutely love because you also have a verse for each one of them. Um, the tenants, if I can turn my page and get to it here. Fresh hope of healing care. Tenant one, my life is affected by mental health issues and can become unmanageable and hopeless, especially if ignored or untreated. Therefore, I choose to help 
I choose the help and support of others to overcome these struggles and find more joy in my life. That's for the one who has the mental health challenge. Then for the loved ones you've included, my loved one's mental health challenge has also left me feeling helpless and hopeless. Thank you for validating that, by the way, because a lot of times as caregivers, we do get hopeless and helpless at times or feel that way. Yes, absolutely. And then you... You talk about Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I think that means when we have no strength and are sitting in that rubble. It's not when we have it all together. Right. Absolutely. In fact, it's when we're curled up in the corner and feel like we can't go on, that it's in our weakness that he makes us strong and he's strong for us. And you know, sometimes I think what we think as Christians, I have to say that passage over and over and over and over and over and over until I believe it. And I can't feel helpless. I can't feel afraid. And I don't hear God saying that. I hear him saying, when you are afraid, when you remember this, I can do. And it's through him. And so I don't have to face these struggles and difficulties because I can't do it on my own. Um, Brad, seven years after the initial event, you had another event. Talk to us about that one, because this also plays into the part where you say it can become unmanageable. Yes. Um, What happened seven years after I was diagnosed, I was taking my medicine faithfully. I was not having mood issues. I wasn't doing all those crazy things. It was almost... It was so supernatural that all that went away. And the monster inside of me that I felt like I was having to to deal with was gone, Uh, at least chained up in the dungeon in my life, you know. And um, he might growl here and there, but he wasn't getting his way. But then my nephew was injured in a bus crash. He was the first one life lighted out of a school bus crash. Um, I only have two nephews. They were both on that bus, and my sister was on the bus behind it. Four people died in the bus crash. My nephew was the most seriously injured who lived, and he had multiple bleeds on his brain. At the same time, our the, the new church that came out of the situation and these wonderful people who had come around me and said, we love this man, he's our pastor, that's a whole other part of the story, um, What happened was I I relapsed because I did not know that you could push past your medicine. I didn't know that so much stress could cause you to start escalating in mood, even though you were taking your medicine. Right. What happened is I messed up one night taking too much, and then um, the next time it was... uh, the next night I thought, well, I just won't take it, and I should have taken it because it was out of my system within 24 hours, and I was totally out of control for about two and a half, three weeks. Ended up in the hospital. And, but it's through that that Fresh Hope was born out. And I, of course, made the news again. And <laughs> You just like making news, Brad. <laughs> yeah, well, this time my charge was disturbing the peace, and um, I guess I disturbed my peace more than anything. But um, I disturbed the peace of our family. But it was out of that that then fresh hope came uh, because I complained and complained and complained to the doctor that there were no hope-filled mental health groups that I had gone to. It just seemed everybody was just talking about how horrible it was and how they had to get on medicine, they were getting on disability and all these kinds of things. And I thought, I can't do this. I've got to learn how to live in spite of this. And you know, in the dis- I'm sorry I'm interrupting you, but I have to say that for 90% of the support groups out there in the disability world, it's people coming together to complain about how bad their life is. Yeah. And I want to say that kind of support's really not what I want. That's like putting on a vest that has an 80-pound weight to it. Yep. I want support that lifts me out of yep. Yep. this doldrum area. And so you couldn't find that. No. And, and your doctor said, put it together. I'll help you. Yeah. And um, yeah, in fact, there's research that shows now if people in the mental health field, or in mental health world anyway, and I would suspect it's true in most um, other areas, but in mental health, if people go to a group where all they do is vent, 
it actually yes. makes them sicker. Yes, because sickness breeds sickness. It's like being around someone who's got a contagious illness. Right, and I, to a certain degree, mental illness is catching. It certainly is because it's how we think. I mean, it's the road in which our, our thoughts like a like a railroad track, and we've got to get them set on the right road or we are going to crash. And you're going to so, think no. like the people you hang around with, and you're going to act like the right. people that you hang out with. And so I, the, the first tenet of Fresh Hope is about, if I don't deal with this, it's going to deal with me. And okay. I can deal with this. I can choose to have help and, and to um, do it. If you can't do it for your own sake, you do it for the sake of your loved ones, for the people that you love. And um, yeah, mind you, I'd, I know that we might not, uh, I, I maybe shouldn't go this direction, but I just very want quickly to tell you that one of the phenomenal parts of my story has been that there was this group of people when I got shoved out of the other church and forced to resign that said, this is wrong. This man needs grace. He needs healing. He needs hope. And um, they came around our family and said, we're going to start a church. And the purpose of our church is going to be to make sure you have a safe place to recover. And we want you to be our pastor. But if you don't want to be our pastor at the end of it, that's not a problem. We don't want Unbelievable you to Unbelievable grace. Yeah, they said, we don't want you to work. We want you to just heal. And we're not only going to pay you, but they gave me an 18% pay raise. And for nearly two years, I did not work. It was something like 18 months to two years. At the end of that time, I worked and very slowly went into it. But these people, it was, it was, I, I honestly believe we really can't get well in our life alone. We need God, but also we need people with Jesus with skin on for us. And it, it was because of their, I, I mean, I've never experienced grace like that. I, I, I mean, God's grace, yes, but they did grace for me. And it saved, now it saved my life. Um, otherwise, I, I don't know if I'd be alive today. I don't either. And so I want to ask you, what qualities did those people have that manifested themselves in a way that promoted your healing over those 18 months? It's amazing that you ask that question because the bottom line is, is all of them had brokenness in their lives mm -hmm. and they knew and they had had grace shown to them. But also... Many of them were medical people who knew that right. mental illness is a brain chemistry issue first and foremost, and that, um, that the issues I was facing had to do with my brain not working properly. And I, they just did not judge. They did not so judge me. They were very, they were accepting of who you were not the behaviors, but who you are as a person. They saw you as a person first. Yep. And then this was an extension of, well, this part of his body is not functioning well. Let's figure that out. And thank the Lord we have the brain imaging and the spec scans that we have today. Yes. Um, they were they were open-handed. They said, as long as it takes, we'll support you. And at the end of this, if you want to be our pastor, then then we're okay with that. So there was no conditional, nope. well, you better. Nope, it not was, at all. It was open-handed, absolutely unconditional love. They did not want me to go back to work until the doctor said I could. And, and um, that was really an incredible time and they just loved on us. They just provided a safe place for us to get better. And um, not just me, but for my family and, um, the, to experience forgiveness and grace in such a way was just, I, I wish everybody could experience that. I told this story twice in Africa at some pastor's conferences years later, and both times the conference got interrupted by a big, huge time of celebration and dancing that they would do, and they, because they just found it unbelievable. 
And um, it is unbelievable. And sadly, it is unbelievable. Yeah. That that's where you find in the church. And yeah, and that should be what we find all the time. Now, let me ask you this, Brad. Um, moving as as you're moving through reconciliation and healing, you're forgiving. You're taking in God's forgiveness, but you also have to go to those who you've hurt. I would assume your wife and kids. Oh yeah. Who, who experienced this? Can you color in those lines for us and tell us what that was like? Yeah. Um, first of all, for my wife, of course. I apologized immediately. She knew long before it broke on the news. She knew when it happened. I came home and I was suicidal. I was just like that. My mood went from manic to, and now for the first, or then for the first time in my life, I had depression and I had never had it before. And um, for her, she looked at me sometime later, it wasn't right away, and she said, I forgive you, and I know who you are, and this is not who you are, but if you don't do everything you need to do to get better, I can't do this. And really, that was the most loving thing that anyone through all of it did for me because she stood firm on that. She didn't, she said, I don't expect you to be perfect. I don't expect you to get well just like that, but I can't do this well. Part of it is that once I was diagnosed and she knew what it was, her mother had committed suicide um, some years before that and because she had bipolar disorder or back then they called it manic depression. Uh And uh, she ended up taking her own life. And uh, my wife just, I, I knew what that did to her then. And I certainly got why she was saying, I can't do this. And um, And this has been redeeming in her life as well then. She's part of Fresh Hope. She helps the loved ones. And um, in fact, we're working on a book together. We're not as far along as we're supposed to be, but um, it's a book about uh, Fresh Hope for those who are the loved ones because their lives are turned upside down. It's just like alcoholism. Mental illness affects everybody in the family. And um, everybody's got to work through the pain. Everybody's got to work through all the stuff. And any issues that a loved one has, they're going to come out in all of that, too. And um, so, yes, she would tell you that she doesn't like to talk about what happened because she was very cognizant of what was going on through all of it. And so the memories cause pain sometimes mm. um, but yeah. she ha- she does talk about it but um, she's she's very um, hesitant to always easily talk about it um, <clears throat> what does that look like as a couple Brad because um, I would imagine a lot of spouses or family members would they don't get hysterical they get historical <laughs> if they're angry and could bring that back up which then they haven't forgiven because forgiveness is not bringing up what you are most embarrassed about and have apologized for and throwing it in my face again just because you're mad. Mm-hmm. What are the, some of those boundaries that she teaches to others? Well, yes. One of the things she does is she talks about separating what happened from me as a person mm-hmm. and understanding why what happened happened. Mm-hmm. Um, Also, um, she talks a lot about trust, how to trust somebody again, and um, how to to choose to trust at first, but then trust comes more automatic with time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, just really, um, you know, holding the person accountable, not letting them off the hook by your forgiveness, but by your forgiveness, that that kind of paves the way for enough grace to be there for them to come to a point where they do change. Now, not uh, you're saying holding them accountable, which some will hear and will say, "Oh, that's a rigid line that we're going to draw." And 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 no, accountability isn't that rigidy 
Yes. It's saying, here, this is what you agreed to. Let's work towards this. And here are the consequences that we need to know will happen if you choose not to. It's about choice. Yes, yes. And, and accountability, um, if I've agreed to something and I'm missing the mark, I need to know that I'm missing the mark. Um, right. I need to know in what way. Now, one of the things we did, though, it wasn't just the two of us. Um, in, in the last um, 14, 15 years, there has been up to maybe a year or two ago, a group of three men that I met with every two weeks. Those men had absolute um, ability to talk to my doctor. They could call my wife. They didn't need my permission. Um, as well as my wife could call any of them and call the doctor. I signed the release form for any of them to be able to talk to the doctor. Because sometimes when people have old patterns, it's hard to break them. And so you just tell one part to so-and-so and a different part to somebody else. And um, so one time those three men showed up at my office and I knew that my wife had called them. Oh no. Because I wasn't listening to her. And I wasn't. She was right. I was not listening to her. Now, that's gotten much better. And, and I can honestly say when we have a conflict now, we don't discuss the past. We really don't. And, um, but it, more than anything, my getting better has more to do with my wife and how she handled this than any one other thing. Wow. That's a powerful statement. Yeah, and it's not because she did it perfectly. It's because in, she hung in there and fought for what was right. Um, yes, it had to do with me being willing to do what I needed to do. I, but when she told me that if I didn't get better, she couldn't do it, I knew what she meant. And right. that was my compelling reason along with my children. And, and I'm so excited to always say that my two adult kids have been through hell and back and they know what it's like to walk through the muck and mire in life. And they watch their father roll around in it at times and wallow and feel sorry for himself. Um, but because of that, my kids are really great adults and I've got a great relationship with them. Um, Isn't that interesting? We want to keep our kids from ever going through that muck and mire. And yet sometimes the muck and mire becomes the narrative that opens doors in their lives for God's purposes. And it prepare, it's prepared them in ways yes. that you watch them and you go, oh, wow, they're really mature emotionally. Wow, yeah. wow. And um, at the time you think your children have been hurt and they're, they're just damaged now. Well, there is nothing that God cannot heal. Right. And um, what, what's happened is now I have grandchildren. I have four, you know, grandchildren are God's reward to you for not having killed your own children <laughs> during puberty. And I have four <laughs> yes. rewards. God doubled my joy. Um, but truly, those children have never been hurt because of my mental illness. And I don't want to ever hurt them. And some days you need motivation. And um, that's my motivation. And I just love those kids, you know, and sometimes I think they just need to come and live at my house because their mom and dad are too strict. <laughs> well, I keep telling my married kids, can you hurry up a little bit? I want to be able to walk when you have the children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, Brad? There's so much I want to talk about, and we're running out of time. I want to look at the rest of the tenets. The second tenet is the mental health challenge also affects the relationships of those who live with me, which we've talked about that. The third tenet is my disorder can become an excuse, and you talk about learned helplessness. Um, how have you stepped out of excusing yourself? Because that can become a habit itself. Yeah, I blog for a national magazine, and... Um Man, when you start talking about you have to be accountable for your behavior, people want to just rail back and say, yes, but I've got this. Well, you do have bipolar disorder. I do too. Excuse me. But you and I 
everybody's got to be responsible for their behavior. And it, to me, part of that is I just, I don't pull the bipolar card. I, I know how to pull it if I have to, but I've maybe once or twice through the years had to remind somebody who was coming down really hard on me to say, you know, every day I work very hard at being mentally healthy, you yes. know, and I, it's a struggle sometimes, and so forgive me, you know, but I don't do that very often. More times than not, it's just because I'm a jerk that I got to take responsibility. I'm just an idiot or I accidentally said what I was really thinking, you know. And and you Well, then you could have Tourette's and I've used that excuse before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like you know, with my father um, passing away, I found that when I had to get home, I had to fly back home from my son's house within hours of having gotten there and um you know, with the airlines, I was having to say, this happened, and can you help me? And I found, well, you can pull that card. Now, it would be really easy three weeks later to pull that card. You know, I'm grieving this. Well, you can't, you can't go through life like that using excuses all the time. Mm -hmm. There are reasons, and then there are excuses. And most of us want our excuses to be reasons. And that does not work out well, does it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yep, there's and reasons, then, but and there's a time to give the reason and state the reason, but then step up and say, but right. in spite of that, I'm responsible. Um, Brad, I also want to ask, or I also want to say about one of the tenets, you include medicine, which is so controversial in the church. You know, oh, they're on medicine. Well, you know, if you have diabetes, you better take your shot. So, absolutely. Talk to me a little about about that. Well, our our minds are what our brain does. The brain is the organic, physiological. It's it's just like any other organ in our body. It's no more spiritual than anything else, and it's as broken as the rest of our body is by sin. And I don't know why that's so hard for people to get. I find that a lot of Christians are inconsistent about this because they will say don't you don't mental health issues that's all spiritual right but they'll go right. in for treatment for cancer well I can right. no more will my brain's chemistry to work properly than I can if I had stage four cancer I can't you can't will yourself out of that God has given to us medicine as a gift it, it, it is one of the ways that he heals. My psychiatrist that I have personally, and he's also on our board of directors for Fresh Hope, says when people ask him, well, is mental illness, isn't that evil? Isn't that from the enemy? And he'll look at them and say, it's all from the enemy. Everything that we go through that is not good in this life comes as a result of the evil of this world and our broken flesh and, and all of these things. So for me, medicine is not a magic pill. Um, and yes, you can depend too much on your medicine and think, you know, oh, my medicine is supposed to do that. It's not working. Well, you have to work with your medicine. You have to do the things you can do. Um, but medicine is a key component. It's right. It, it's necessary. And it's right. I am not ashamed to say I take medicine, but I right. also take medicine um, for other things. You know, my thyroid isn't working right these days and I take medicine for it. I can't make my thyroid function properly by saying thyroid function properly. You know, it doesn't work. And um, so I, I tell Christians, if you're against medicine, at least be consistently against it in all cases. Otherwise, you've got to accept the brain is no different than the rest of the body. Absolutely. Um, Brad, there are a couple more tenets, and, uh, and we've touched on them about not being a victim by, by, or not being a victim to the disorder, but taking responsibility to accept that it is present in our lives. I want to ask, too, we're... Um, my mother has a history, well, she recorded a CD for 
insight for living on forgiveness and the process that she went through in forgiving um, her father of horrible abuse and pain and how she worked through that forgiveness process. I would assume you've put together a pretty good structure to, to that process of forgiving those who kicked you out of that church where you were a pastor. Tell us what that looks like practically. How can we incorporate that practice into our lives? Well, again, I would go back to it's, it's a choice. You, you decide and you have to audibly say it. You have to remind yourself that you're choosing that. But your feelings, it, it may be an academic decision. It may be a head decision, but your heart and your feelings is going to take a long time. And it's a process and uh, some days are easier than others. And so what it goes back to the not allowing yourself to ruminate and play it over and over. I think you have to, you do have to grieve it. You have to grieve what was lost. That's appropriate and then not rehearse it and learning how to um, not only stop it, but then to take control of how you're thinking about things, how you're framing it in your mind. Sooner or later. And reframing it, yes. Yeah, and then sooner or later, but probably later than sooner, your feelings do catch up. Um, Feelings, and I believe this with all my heart, how you and I feel is based upon what we believe. And so a lot of that work in forgiveness has to be in looking at the truth of God's word, not based upon what I feel, but what is true and what is um, true then has to become what, what drives me. In doing that, then my feelings will ultimately catch up. It doesn't mean that you can't feel though. You've got to you got to go ahead and feel. And when you're angry, you got to let those things out and right. appropriately. Yeah. Right. But otherwise, you're just hurting yourself by holding on to it. Right. Um, as we come to a close, Brad, I came to an interesting thing I want to read this morning on hope. Um, and the author, Sarah Young, writes at the very beginning of Jesus Today, she says, and this is for anyone who's listening or watching who is in the rubble, who's stuck, who's at that place where you were saying, there's no more life that I have to live. I've ruined this. She writes, put your hope in me, meaning the Lord, in my unfailing love, and it will rest upon you. Some of my children have forgotten how to hope. They have been disappointed so many times that they don't want to risk being let down again. So they forge ahead stoically, living mechanically. Other people put their hope in problem solving, maybe the stock market, winning, winning the lottery, and so on. But I challenge you to put fully your hope in me. Is that what you would say to someone who has hit rock bottom? Yes, I would tell them, you just hold on to this one simple thing. God is going to take it and he's going to make it work for your good. And that you've got a future. And, and I also tell people when they're at the bottom of the pile, if you can't believe that right now, if you can't feel that, even today, if you can't choose it, borrow some of my hope. Just borrow it from me. Just say, well, he believes that and he believes it for me. Just, yes. just do that. And because hope is catching. And the more of it we give away, the more of it we get. <laughs> I would even write it on a card. Yes. I am loved. I am forgiven. I am filled with hope and I have a future. Yes, and write it on your mirror with a yes. whiteout um, or a, a washable marker or a permanent marker. The idea that we believe the other lies so easily, we have to realize that default setting of our brain has to be changed. It has to be changed. And um, that doesn't come easily. But whoever's listening to this today and might feel broken, if you do any homework on my life or you've heard about it today, I am living proof that God does not give up on us. 
I am living proof that you can't be so broken that you can't be used ever again. I, I'm living proof that, that there's nothing too big for God to forgive. And um, I know a whole bunch of men that I'm working with in jail right now who yesterday I heard some of the most awful, awful, painful things that I've ever heard. I actually got nauseous. It was so painful to hear. And I could look every one of them in the square in the eye and say, God has not given up on you. God is with you. He's for you. And, and that's true for anybody listening. And even for you, Colleen. Thank you. I have to tell myself that sometimes because there are moments where I just sometimes wonder, Lord, what are you going to do with this? Yep. Yeah. Um, and he does something incredible. And then we sit back and are in awe of it. It's amazing, isn't it? Yep. Yep. All right. Well, Brad, where can we find you on the Internet and on Facebook and your book, Fresh Hope? Tell us how we can connect with you. You can, uh, as far as the book, Fresh Hope for Mental Health, Living Well in Spite of a Mental health challenge. <laughs> Isn't that a long title? You can just type <laughs> in Fresh Hope on Amazon.com and find the book there. Um, okay. Fresh Hope for Mental Health is on Facebook. You can just type it in. I'm on Twitter. Um, just type in my name. Um, and also, uh, you can read my blog and other blogs from Fresh Hope people by going to www.pastorbrad.blog and um, blog is like .com. And then you can find out about Fresh Hope by going to freshhope.us. And uh, we also have, we work with pastors who um, uh, want to have mental health uh, ministries in their churches and those kinds of things. There's, if you just Google stuff, you can find us many different ways, so. Well, I absolutely loved your YouTube videos on, um, from Saddleback Community Church and the mental health that uh, conference that they had. Yes. Um, there's, there's so many good things out there. And as we close, Brad, I just want to thank you for continuing to live, for choosing to live and to believe the truth. And as you have communicated that here, I hope those who are watching or listening will also do the same, that there is hope for your life. It has to be rethought and reframed under God's truth and you have no idea what he will do with Absolutely. you as a surrendered person. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Brad, for this time. Thank it's you. It's been wonderful to be with you. You too. Thank you. Have a, have a good day. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the Reframing Ministries podcast. We invite you to join the conversation on our blog at specialneedsblog.org.